Well, I'm back. Um, <clears throat> my name's Ryan Stevens. This is Pocket Jesus. If you remember, I taught out of Mark 4 a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that I had bought a Pocket Jesus, and I had a really great sermon illustration for it, and then I forgot him at home, so I brought him so you could see him. Today, he's been like this in our pantry for a while, but um, if you haven't heard the sermon, it's called The Perfect Storm. It's out of Mark 4, um, and that is up on the podcast. So this morning, I was sort of past the torch while Greg and Pelzetta are out. Uh, they are out doing a marriage weekend, so good on them. Uh, we're, I'm excited to be able to be here while, uh, while Greg is not. This is the first time I've ever done this, preach while Greg is not here. So I feel like I sort of can say whatever I want. So, <laughs> so that's good. Although he'll listen to the podcast, I'm sure. Um, so this morning, when I initially, uh, the teaching team sat down to, to dole out the text for this morning, the text that I had initially selected was Mark 6, 1 through 12. So what was read this morning was Mark 6, 1 through 6. And the problem was that as I sat down to read through the text and as I sat down and started processing it and writing and then erasing and then rewriting and then erasing and then rewriting, I decided that it was just too meaty to be able to do in one week. So this is also a first for me because this is the first of a, a, a double header for me. You get me this week and next week for side A, side B, part one, part two, of Mark 6. So I love this text this morning because it really speaks to uh, the topic of identity. It looks a lot at where Jesus found his own identity. It also looks at where our identity should be found. And I think it's really primed for this week, this, uh, I don't think it's by chance, that this Mark 6 falls in these next couple weeks because as a church we've been going through mission and vision, trying to establish what is our mission and vision, who are we and where are we going. And so what better way to start uh, into that journey than to really define identity? Because uh, we have to know who we are before we can accomplish any sort of outflow, any sort of obedience, any sort of uh, outreach, right? So uh, as we're set to talk about hometown identity this week, uh, it's, it's a, a topic near and dear to my heart. I grew up in a really tiny town, about 2,000 people, uh, where sort of everybody knows everybody type of thing. And this is going to shock you. This, yes, this is bowl cut and buck teeth, Ryan. Uh, that was like maybe sixth grade or something. Uh, I have a couple pictures for you. But, so I grew up in this tiny little hometown, right? About 2,000 people. Everybody knows everybody. And this is going to shock you. But I haven't always been of the commanding stature that I am now. So uh, when, I was, when I was in middle school, I think it was probably middle school, somewhere like uh, sixth grade, fifth grade, I picked up the nickname Shorty, and uh, it, was, it fit me very well. Uh, on my first driver's license, I was four foot eight and weighed 83 pounds. I wrestled 98 pounds in high school all the way through. There's little singlet Ryan getting his 98 pound thing on. Um, so it fit me, right? And, and I was cool with it. I don't, like I said, I don't even exactly know where I picked it up, but when I say I was known by the nickname Shorty, I don't just mean like my friends knew me as Shorty, the whole town knew me as Shorty, it was like my second name. Listed in all the sports rosters and everything was Ryan Shorty Stevens, because I wanted to be like, who's Ryan? So um, this also to say that I, small town, my parents were really, really active in the small town also. My dad worked at one of, one of the, what is really the two stable sources of employment in the town, which is a coal-fired power plant. And my mom taught, uh, she didn't teach, she was a secretary and then a computer tech at our high school. So they knew and were plugged into town very deeply. And then I, had a, I have one sibling, she's an older sister, she's four years older than me, and she's a super overachiever. 
So she was like a cheerleader and she played volleyball and she was one of the best golfers in the state. She was the valedictorian of her high school class and everybody knew Katie. So all this to say that when I was growing up in Colstrip, Montana, that was the name of it, Colstrip. When I was growing up in Colstrip, Montana, I was um, being defined by a lot of different things. I was either being Mark and Vicky's son, or I was being Katie's little brother, and at best, on, a, on the best day, I was being shorty. I was being defined by my physical appearance. And to clarify, there wasn't really anything wrong with any one of those titles. Like I said, they all sort of fit me, and I was fine with it, but I knew that I didn't want to be defined by that forever. I knew that I had more to offer than that. I didn't always want to be defined by my size, or by the shadow cast, by my siblings, or by my parents. And so, when I graduated from high school, I did what a lot of kids from Colstrip do when they graduate from high school, and I ditched. I hit the road, I went to a college where no one else from my hometown was going. I sort of got on the road and never looked back. It was first my first chance really to define who I wanted myself to be, and really start to look at um, who Ryan Stevens was gonna be outside of his own parents' house. It was a process, a long process, and it ended with the eventual surrender of my life to Christ where he defines me, or at least I try to allow him to define me, right, in my battle against the flesh. And in the meantime, I went out to college. I, I got my doctor of pharmacy from the University of Montana in 2010. Um, so then I gained the title of pharmacist and then of resident. I worked at Alaska Native Medical Center for a while, and now I'm a pharmacist at Prov. Uh, I met my wife. I gained the title of husband in 2009. In 2012, I had my first child, uh, Matthew, many of you know him, and, and gained the title of father. So a lot of life happened between Shorty, right, between this guy and who I am today. But here's the interesting thing. When I go back to Colstrip, I'm still Shorty, right? That's how everyone knows me. That's how everyone sees me. They still define me by the shadow that, was, that, that I lived in when I was younger. It's, they think that I've almost managed to stay the same in 10 years, but the reality is that they don't even know the person that I am anymore. They saw what shaped me early on. They saw the like early years of Ryan and the early influences on me, but they never really saw some of the most important steps along the way. So the reality is that the shorty that they know is dead, right? That he, I, he died in 2004. He was crucified with Christ. And I can really only stand here today. I can only, really only preach today because I am a new creation in him. So as I thought about this issue of hometown identity, I thought it was really interesting. Um, we don't get a lot of what Jesus was like as a child in the Bible, right? It sort of skips from this like manger-lying babe to a 12-year-old who's teaching the Pharisees, and then it's like very choppy until we get to really the story that we all know. So, as I was thinking about this, he was both fully God and fully man. And so, just like I had my buck teeth and bowl cut years, I found myself sort of wondering if Jesus had like a, some buck teeth and bowl cut years. Like if the people of Nazareth knew a different Jesus than what everyone else knew because they had watched him grow up and go through sort of these awkward, like pubescent, you know, big feet and squeaky voice and thin mustache stage. Like... <laughs> they probably had a little bit different view of him because he was both fully God and he was fully man. And so this paints a little bit of a different picture for me, which I really like, because I like to think of the humanity of Jesus sometimes. I like to ponder that, because it gives me this view of sort of him as a man, which I think is so important as we go to consider him, to know that he walked through what we're walking through. 
And so, at any rate, uh, just like the last time I taught out a mark, I found myself asking the same questions about this. Uh, the, the, the primary question I found myself asking was, why this story and why now? Why was this written and why was it put here? Why was it included in this text? So in order to really dive into that, we have to remember that the whole book of Mark to this point has really been written to answer uh, one question, really. That's, who is this man? We've seen tons of people ask it over and over and over. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And most of the encounters we've had with people asking this question, they're asking it as they look on in like fear and trembling or in amazement. And typically, when they first encounter Jesus, they see his humanity and then slowly begin to see his deity, slowly begin to see him as God, as supernatural. So I thought it was interesting uh, this week that it's sort of backwards, right? It's the first time we encounter a group of people that when they first encounter Jesus, they see his supernatural-ness. They see this deity in him, and it slowly morphs into only seeing his humanity, and they essentially end up walking away. So as the story, like Will already read, goes, uh, Jesus goes into Nazareth with, his, Nazareth with his disciples, and they're hanging out, and the Sabbath rolls around, so he goes to do some teaching. And initially the crowds gather, and they're amazed, right? It says that they're, they, they look on with amazement. Only problem is their amazement quickly turns to confusion when they start to, they start to see something that maybe they didn't see initially. They start to look at Jesus, and they're like, wait a minute. I think I know this guy. Isn't this, a, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this guy. Those are his sisters sitting right there. This is, this is just Jesus, right? This is just Jesus. So eventually their sense of familiarity with Jesus takes what was once amazement and then leaves it with a state of what's called offense in the scripture. It says they were offended. And if you look up the Greek, translation of that word, it actually means to fall away or to fall away from the faith, to go astray. So as I read this text the first time, I found myself wondering, what was it about this encounter in particular? Like, what was it about their interaction that made this whole crowd sort of recalculate what they saw, that turned their amazement into offense? And like I said, it would appear that they were just sort of washed over with this wave of familiarity that like choked out any possibility of any sort of deeper level faith in what they were observing because they were too familiar with, with the man or too familiar with who they thought the man was, the identities that they were sort of piling onto him. And it blows my mind that they have the opportunity to really sit in a room with God. Like they're sitting in a room with God, listening to him teach, and they choose just not to see it. They fail to see Jesus in Jesus, and so they just are sort of done with it. So, when you look at it, they really ask themselves six questions, right? They initially uh, recognize his deity. They originally are in a state of amazement. And then they slowly drift from recognition of deity only to humanity. So when I looked at the six questions, there's really three uh, that point towards Jesus' deity or the supernatural, and then three that point back to his humanity. So the three that point to his deity are, where did this man get these things? This is clearly not just of man, right? So where did he get them? What's this wisdom that's been given him? Like, he's been given this, so he, there's something up. There's something different with this guy. 
And then what are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? So all three seem like pretty reasonable questions when you're sitting in a room with God. Uh, but yet, at this point, their, their recognition, like I said, it's, it fades from, from deity to humanity. They start to see, I have to imagine that they started to see his eyes, right? I, I, I think that had to have been it. Like, the, okay, the beard, maybe the long hair. I don't think Jesus was a redhead. Can I just say that this pocket Jesus, I think, is a little off? But... The beard, the hair, the, he's a little taller, he's a little older, maybe a little wiser, deeper voice, but the eyes are the same. The eyes are the eyes of the little boy that was running around on the streets with his bowl cut when we were the streets we still walk today, right? It was too familiar. So they ask these three questions. They say, isn't this the carpenter? They say, isn't this Mary's son? And they say, isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us right now? So as I looked at this turning point and thought, why, why did this drift? Why did this go south? I began to see that it's really because of three sort of false identities that they piled on to Jesus that like I said earlier, it took away their ability to see Jesus in Jesus because they were too busy defining him by an identity that was not his own. All the observations that they made, they were true, right? Jesus was Mary's son. He was a carpenter. Yeah, okay. But the thing is that he never really drew his identity from any one of those things. He found his identity only in the Father, and he knew that only from that relationship with the Father could he draw all of his power and his authority and his strength. His identity was firmly rooted in that, so he wasn't a full-time carpenter and a part-time God, right? He was a full-time carpenter and a part-time Savior. His identity unwavered, was unwavering even when he was questioned uh, about it in this encounter. So this whole sort of encounter made me think back to the Shape Up series, if you remember the Shape Up series that we did. It made me think of the triangle, specifically looking at relationship with the Father as our up component, identity in Christ as our in component, and then obedience to God's will as the out component. And like I said, I think this sermon and this text really helps me point to identity. It helps me view identity a little bit differently. Because when I accepted Christ, I, I was given the ability to draw on the identity of Christ for myself. I was given the ability to clothe myself in the identity of Christ. But the question is, do I? Do I actually do that? Where do I draw my identity from? Does that change depending on my circumstances? Does it change depending on where I am or who I'm with? Does it change based on the way that people are viewing me? So what I want to do is I want to look at these three sort of false identities that were piled onto Jesus, right? That the crowd failed to see Jesus because they were too focused on these false identities. The first one is, isn't this the carpenter? Now, I found it was interesting because Jesus was indeed a carpenter. He was a carpenter. Uh, I think he had probably a pretty good one, Zach. You know he was. You know he was, Zach. Zach's a carpenter. Mike, you guys can level. He was good. I mean, he had to have been good. He was God. I don't know that to be fact, but I'm speculating. <laughs> but the skill was taught to him by his earthly father, likely, right? And so the crowd knew this, and so they thought, we know what you do. Therefore, it would only make sense that we know who you are. 
And this first place is honestly probably one of the easiest for me to get lost, uh, for my identity to get lost, for me to trade my identity in Christ for an identity as a pharmacist, to trade who I am in Christ for what I do in this world. And it can be really easy to do, and it can be really dangerous, slippery slope, especially for men, because I think men, we're wired to be providers, we're wired for work. And so sometimes I think I can, I can and men in general, can lose their view of who provided us with the ability to provide, right? We focus so much on our hands and us doing the work that we forget who gave us the skill to be able to do the work in the first place. We take a skill set that was given to us by the Father, and we turn it into something that competes with him for space in our hearts. Maybe replaces him altogether. So I have an example uh, for you. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. I think it's funny. Um, but no judgment. Let he who judges, or he who, he who is without sin cast the first stone. So I, I don't necessarily advertise this all the time, uh, but I do have my doctor of pharmacy. Greg is like an inside joke, calls me doc. He thinks it's hilarious, so just indulge him in that sometime. Um, but I have my doctor in pharmacy, and so I don't advertise it, but every now and then I will allow it to define me. I'll allow it uh, to be what makes up Ryan Stevens. So a good time that I've done this before is... When I have to call a company like over and over and over and over, and I'm sitting on hold forever and forever and forever, and finally someone comes back on the line and they say, hi, Mr. Stevens, thank you for holding. I like to say, yes, Dr. Stevens, and you're welcome. <laughs> All right. Okay, it's not humble and it's not Christ-like, but the reality is that I'm not always humble and Christ-like. I want to be, but I'm not always. And so... The question I have to ask, right, is why would I do this? Like, why would I say this? And the answer is because Dr. Stevens somehow holds weight with the person on the other end of the line more so than Mr. Stevens. It, it, it sort of is funny when you think about it because it's like, what does this person with AT&T care? They don't care. Just pay your bill, dude. We don't care what, what you do. But here's the thing, when I allow myself to be, to be reduced from a man of God to a pharmacist, it's exactly that. It's a demotion, right? I allow myself to be reduced from a man of God to a pharmacist. Because the reality is that the man that I am is much more defined by the grace and mercy extended to me and by the power and authority that I'm given in Christ than it is by what I do. And so for me to trade it and say, I would rather have these two letters in front of or behind my name, it's cheap. It's really cheap. And so there are lots of different gifts. There is lots of different um, gifts given to the body. So when talking about spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. God empowers us with gifting, and the diversity that we see in the gifting is both beautiful and necessary, right? So it's absurd that we would take this gifting, and we would sort of mix it like one part gifting to one part pride, and we would create out of that for ourselves a new identity. We would take what God gave us, the skill that he gave us, and instead of offering it back to him, we'd say, no, 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 I'll just do this now. 
In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So get this. If I'm the branch and I start to define myself by the fruit that I'm producing rather than the tree that I'm part of, I can do nothing. That's what Christ says, right? So take a branch that's bursting with fruit. Like, you've seen like an apple tree that there's so much apples on the branch that it's like draped over. Take that branch and break it off the tree and just see how much fruit it produces from that moment forward. If we draw our identity from our work rather than from our God, we'll be fruitless and eventually we'll be dead. Because later in that scripture in John 15, it says, what happens to the branch that's pruned from the tree, that's broken from the tree? It's cast into the fire. So I thought about it this way too. The same way that I can get caught up as a pharmacist or let my title define me in life, I thought, what if, what if PG did this? What if Greg did this, right? What if he defined himself as pastor so heavily? If the church and him put so much emphasis on his pastoral gifting, which is a gifting in Greg, that he decided, you know, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to stop having a relationship with the Father. I'm going to stop being part of this tree. I'm just going to keep producing pastoral fruit, Right? It would never work. It would never be sustainable, uh, and, and it would be really hard for us to follow him or his lead anywhere, right? First and foremost, we all, even PG, have to find our identity in the Father. We have to find our identity in Christ and in nothing else. So then how do we take this skill set given to us, this gifting given to us, and how do we actually use it? Like, how do we not allow it to overtake us? Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So every day we should be taking our gifting, and we should be offering it back to the Lord. We should be giving it back to the source of our true identity. We should be working unto him. We should be policing unto him. We should be recruiting unto him. We should be accounting unto him. We should be using our gift and giving it back to God. Give the fruit back to the source. Greg asked me this question the other day, and it sort of rocked me. I think he dropped it, like, real casually in conversation, too. And it, like, has just been destroying me. He said, if you have really found your identity in Christ, then shouldn't others be able to find Christ in you? So this made me think about work a lot for me, because I, if I'm wondering if I've made work my identity, then maybe I should examine my identity at work. And so I'm not saying that I'm good at this because I'm really not. Uh, Work has always been an area that I find myself to be inconsistent. And so I struggle with it, but I found myself asking, I wonder wonder if my coworkers even know that I'm a Christian. Like, I wonder um, if they even know. They may see the fruit of my gifting. They may see uh, the fruit of the gifting of pharmacy in me, but do they actually see Christ in me? And if not... I probably have some work to do. So I'm telling you, I probably have some work to do. Christ was a carpenter, but he was so much more than that. And if we allow ourselves to only be seen as pharmacists that follow Christ rather than Christ followers that practice pharmacy, then we're going to miss it. We're going to miss our identity to fully grasp an identity that's completely and totally rooted in Christ and in Christ alone. So false identity number two is, isn't this Mary's son? Now, this one was interesting. This held some weight the way it was said. It was pointed, and it was very intentional, and I missed it the first few times I read it. 
But then I went back and I was reading a commentary, and the commentary was pointing out that if you look at genealogies in the Bible, men are always referred to by their father, not by their mother. So they would have said, this is Ryan, son of Mark, not this is Ryan, son of Vicky. So for the crowd to stand there and to say, isn't this Mary's son, what they were actually saying was, we're not totally sure who Jesus' father was. And we all know how the story goes, right? Like, we all know what the true story is. But these folks in Nazareth, they sort of weren't buying the virgin birth story, it would appear. So they took what they, what they saw to be an unsavory piece of Jesus' past, and they used it to question his true identity, to disqualify what he was saying. Essentially, essentially, for all intents and purposes, they called him a bastard, publicly, in the middle of a sermon in the synagogue, nonetheless, right? Now, let me be clear. Jesus was sinless, right? He was perfect, and so there wasn't actually an actual blemish on his record ever. But this group, they took their own perception of his past, of his very origin, and they distorted it, and that made him unqualified or unreliable to be teaching the things he was teaching in their eyes. They assigned him an identity of bastard child, and they just moved on. Right? So this one, this one's really hard to relate to because we never do this. We never take things that have happened to us in our past. We never take pieces of our story. And different from Christ, maybe things that we've done, we never take those and define ourselves by them. We never draw our identity out of our horrible, messy past, right? And in fact, it's one of the most dangerous places that we can draw our identity because it's the biggest way that Satan can shackle us, right? And can hold us down and can keep us oppressed and can keep us from walking in true obedience to God's will because we're clothed in an identity of our disgusting, sinful selves rather than in an identity of Christ. So, you're probably sitting there thinking like, well, Ryan, I don't know, man. I did some pretty bad stuff. My past is pretty messy. Well, if you label yourself with a big scarlet letter, all you're going to do is allow yourself to be held back from claiming your true identity. You could say, well, I've had a bit of a wild youth, so I'm probably not qualified to, to deal with the youth. Right? Or you could say, well, I have a history of infidelity, and so who am I to speak up at a marriage ministry? Or, you know what, Ryan? I've been to prison. And how am I possibly going to minister to all these church folk that haven't? But here's the thing. 2 Corinthians 5.17, and thank God for this verse, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So if we, in Christ, are a new creation then we have a fresh start. Our past has been forgiven because of his blood and because of his sacrifice. And so if this is true, then in the eyes of God, when we stand before him someday, he will only see Christ. He won't see our dirty, messy, sinful selves prior to accepting Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the gospel, right? So then, it blows my mind why we would continue to trade an identity in Christ for an identity in our past. Galatians 4, 9, and 10 says, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved? Ooh, I love that word. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
So here's the thing. If we define ourselves by our past, or even more dangerously, by someone else's perception of our past, then we will without doubt ever fail to ever live in the fullness of an identity in Christ. We can have relationship with the Father, but without being clothed in His Son, then how can we ever walk in perfect obedience or in any sort of obedience to His will? It's out of the relationship with the Father, it's out of the up that we draw our in, and it's out of the in that we take it out to the world. Now, Jesus was perfect, and we don't have that luxury. So again, you may be saying to yourself, well, yeah, Ryan, it was a perceived blemish in Jesus' past, but I have some real blemishes in my past. Well, I found myself wondering about this and thinking about sort of God's ability to use that for his own glory and asking, could God take this horrible thing that I've done and turn it into something beautiful and glorifying? And that led me to 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11, which says, but he said to me, Paul talking about a conversation he'd had with Jesus, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When Paul is weak, then Christ in Paul is strong. When Ryan is weak, when Ryan is broken, when Ryan can finally come to the end of himself, then Christ in Ryan can finally start to do some work. So I believe that our past have been forgiven in Christ but that they uniquely position us to spread the gospel and to reach people that might only be able to hear it from someone that has stood where they stand in that moment. Because it might take someone that's battled through addiction in order to reach the addicted. It might take someone who has, it might take a marriage that has made it through infidelity to be able to help another marriage dealing with infidelity. It may take someone who struggles with depression every day to be able to help someone who struggles with depression every day. And the beauty is that your identity is not found in what you have done. It's not found in your past, but rather because of your past, someone else just might be able to find Christ in you. If you have taken the identity of Christ, can someone else find Christ in you? So God takes this mess that we create, right? He takes this big ball of gross sin and he washes it in real identity, in truth. That of his son. And then through our obedience to him, he uses that same past for his glory. So don't let your identity be found in your past. Don't let Satan hold you back because of your past, because of sins that have already been paid for. You have to stand firm and stand confident in the promises of Christ, right? And who you are in him. So the last uh, false identity, the last question the crowd asks, They try to assign Jesus his identity out of his family, out of their familiarity with his family, really. They say, isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? They tried to say, we know the people that you're most closely related to. Therefore, we must also know you. The thing is, Jesus hasn't even been in Nazareth for a while. Right? Like it says, he just got back to town. It's not like he's been sitting there with his brothers and sisters up until this point. But because of the familiarity that the crowd had with Jesus as a member of that family, 
and probably just the familiarity they had with the whole family in general, their response turns from amazement, from looking on at his teaching with amazement, to, oh, it's just Jesus, everyone. Nothing to see. It's just Jesus. So as I stopped to think about this, and I was dialoguing it with Greg, we were drawn back to Mark 3, where Jesus is gathering his disciples to eat, and his family hears about it. They hear about these sort of like, unsavory folks that Jesus is hanging out with, and they're like, he's out of his mind. So they go to collect him, and he's told that his mother and brothers are outside, and what's his response? He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looks around at those seated with him, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So out of that statement, it's clear that Jesus didn't find his identity in his earthly family. He found his identity only in the Heavenly Father, and he drew his identity only out of the relationship with the Heavenly Father, and only because he had this perfect identity in the Father could he walk in obedience to God's will. And I don't know if it's just part of our culture, or maybe just part of humanity. It's been going on for a long time, so it maybe suggests that it's just humanity. But how often do we assign other people, or even ourselves, an identity based on the company that we keep. Sort of, you are who you hang out with mentality. Sometimes that means assigning someone an identity based on their family, like saying, oh, I know him, that's Mark's boy, or that's Kate's little brother. And sometimes it means assigning an identity based on a social circle or a group of friends. But though we encounter people every day, We walk in a lot of different circles, and because we do that, people have an impact on our lives, but they don't define us. Our relationships with other people don't define us. You aren't a Christian just because you hang out with Christians. You're not a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home and because your parents are Christians. That doesn't doesn't cut it. You're not going to get to judgment, and God won't say, you know what, Tommy, I didn't really know you, and you didn't really know me, but, but, oh, wait, oh, you hang out with Greg. Guys, Tommy's here. Tommy hangs out with Greg. He's cool. Let him in, right? That's not how it works. The only way we get to heaven, the only way we get to experience eternity with the Father, the only way we're able to cash in on the promise of eternal life is if we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and in Christ alone. If we're washed in his blood and we've really found our identity in him and in him alone. Because if we were defined by the company that we keep, then Jesus would have been in some big trouble. Because he hung out with some folks that were pretty unsavory at the time. But because of his up relationship with the Father, because he was drawing on that relationship, his identity was etched in stone. He was able to live out a life of perfect obedience to God's will. He could model for us what outreach actually looks like. He lived it. He lived the triangle constantly, up, in, out, up, in, out. We cannot define ourselves. We cannot find our identity in anyone else walking around on this earth trying to figure out their crap the same way we are. Can't do it. I can't find my identity in my wife. I love her dearly, but I can't. If I do, I'm going to have big problems. The only true source of identity, the only way we can really take our relationship with the Father and effectively walk in obedience to his will, to effectively do out, is to have our identity in Christ alone. 
So Mitch, if you want to come up. Um, as I was studying this text, it sort of hit me that the people in Nazareth really were just assigning Jesus an identity based on the only places they knew to be possible. But as they heaped labels and definitions onto him, it didn't make Jesus question his own identity. He didn't have an identity crisis and break down and be like, I just I don't know who I am anymore. He sort of shrugs it off. At least it appears like a little bit of a shrug off. He says, a prophet is, is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And the text tells us that all of the questions they ask and perhaps the familiarity with Jesus or their inaccurate understanding of where his identity was really found, it caused them to go from a state of amazement to a state of offense. It caused them to fall away. And when it says that Jesus was unable to do any mighty work there except for heal just a few people, it's not saying that his power, that his authority was somehow imperfect or limited in that town. It's making it clear that because of the lack of faith shown by the town, because they wouldn't give him the space in their hearts to do a mighty work, none could be done. So, Jesus packed up and he moved on. So as we close for today, just like I usually do, I, I like to ask questions at the end of every sermon. and I have four questions for us. The first is, just as we do with every single sermon that we teach or hear or study out of the book of Mark, we should be asking ourselves, who is this man? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And who do I believe him to be? Where do I believe his real identity is rooted? Then after we define that for ourselves, the next question we have to ask is, will we take offense with him? Will we give him the space in our heart to be able to do a mighty work? Then we have to ask, once we've identified who he is, once we've given him the space to work in our heart, we have to say, well, where do I find my identity? Is my identity found in Christ? Because he hung on a cross so that I could be restored to relationship with the Father so that I could be clothed in him and that would be my identity. And once we embrace that, once we embrace that identity, we can finally begin to walk in obedience to God's will. We can finally begin to go out to a lost, to a broken world, right? So if we know who he is, we take no offense with him, give him the space, we draw our identity from him, we're clothed in him, then the last question we have to ask is, what are we going to do about it? Once we define who we are as a church, once we establish a mission and a vision, once we put that on paper, once we hear from God and say, this is who we are, then you have to ask, what are we going to do about it? You just file away to our website, keep doing life the same way we're doing it now? It can't be that way. Because if our identity is really found in Christ and rooted in a relationship with the Father, then the only logical response is to reach out, is to walk in obedience to God's will. Because we have a great commission to fulfill. And we have lives to save and we have a gospel to preach and we have souls to reclaim. So if we feel and recognize and embrace the up, if we're clothed in the in, then we have to walk out. That is exactly what we're going to talk about next week.
side B, part two. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a new day. Thank you for leaves on the trees. Thank you for the green around town. It is just fresh. It's refreshing. I love season change, God. It just reminds me that we're alive. This world is alive, God. And I just thank you for the new season that this church is entering into. I thank you for the meetings we've had about mission and vision. I thank you for the direction we're moving. And God, we want to be a church on mission for you. We want to hear what you are saying to us, and we want to move out of that and out of that alone. And Father God, as we go to do that, our identity is only in Christ. It can only be in Christ. Because in order to walk in obedience to your will, we know, we know that we've got to let go of some of these identities we've been labeling ourselves with. We've got to let go of the identities defined by our work or by our past, by our sinful selves pre-Christ. God, we know we have to let go of our identities rooted in other people that each and every one of us has to find an identity first rooted in Christ and in nothing else and then come together as a community of Christ followers that just desires to see change, that desires to see obedience and then offer all of the fruit back to you. Father God, we love you. I ask that you would watch over these people today, that you would take them home safely. I ask that they would just be in constant community all week, God, that you would just blow them up, ask them questions. What is their identity at work? What is their identity with their family? Where's their consistency? God, reveal things to us, not just today for this hour, but all week long we seek you. We love you and we praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.